Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, For our in-house guests, we always ask that last courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. Thank you especially, Brett, for being up here on stage with it. And for those watching online, you're always welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Welcoming our guest and leading our discussion is Brett Schaefer, who serves as the Jay Kingham Senior Research Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs, part of our Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. He analyzes a wide range of foreign policy issues, focusing primarily on the United Nations and affiliated funds and programs, and frequently speaks and publishes on these issues to both international and domestic audiences. He edited in 2009 the book Conundrum, which the limits of the United Nation and the search for alternatives. He joined us in 1995, and from March 2003 to March 2004, he worked at the Pentagon as an assistant for international criminal court policy. Please join me in welcoming Brett Schaefer. Brett? It's, yeah, it's funny. Um, John mentioned Conundrum. In Conundrum, we had a, a book about, or we had a chapter, rather, talking about United Nations human rights mechanisms and the uh, flaws of those mechanisms and really embracing and advancing uh, fundamental human rights and freedoms. And we did so in what I now recognize as a fairly fundamental way because the book that we're talking about today um, by Mr. Rhodes uh, the debasement of human rights and how politics sabotage the ideal of freedom is sort of the master's thesis to what we began or what we talked about in, in that chapter. Uh, well, maybe a PhD. We'll just go ahead and get the dissertation level. But um, it's uh, um, Mr. Rhodes, um, for those of you who don't know, is an international human rights advocate. He's been in this field for decades. He's uh, traveled abroad, he's spoken, he's worked in the field to try and advance human rights everywhere from the former Soviet Union to uh, Eastern Europe to Africa to uh, Latin America and Cuba, Iran, you name it, where there's been human rights um, deficits. He's been there to try and point out and guide the way to uh, fixing those problems. And this book is a um, just, I think, an overdue uh, discussion about how the notion of human rights has traveled so far away from the original concept outlined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's uh, 
traveled from what we all recognize as basic fundamental uh, human rights and freedoms in terms of expression, uh, freedom of expression, uh, the right to due process, uh, individual liberties into something that is very different today. Uh, talking about economic, social, and cultural rights, the right to food, the right to water, essentially guarantees that governments uh, can provide, but getting away from the original concept of of where human rights came from. And uh, without any further ado, I'd, I'd like just to give the floor to uh, Mr. Rhodes to talk about his book and to talk about how this evolution uh, in, in the concept of human rights has become harmful for the very concept and actually harmful uh, to people who still lack those basic rights and freedoms around the world today. Uh, thank you very much for coming here, Mr. Rhodes. Thank you, Brett. Um, I, I've known Brett for a number of years, and I, I've never seen him here in Washington. It's always been uh, in the belly of the beast in uh, Human Rights Council. Um, the, the theme of my book is, is uh, that... Uh, Human rights are based on natural rights. Uh, the idea of human rights is the idea that humans, uh, in a state of nature, possess basic liberties, and that they need these liberties to fulfill themselves as individuals. Um, economic and social rights... Um, have introduced a, poli a political dimension into human rights. And there's a difference between human rights and politics. Uh, politics are about dividing the pie. They're about compromise. Uh, and they're about gradual development. And human rights are about liberties. They're about freedoms. And uh, I don't want this book to be seen as a, as a political attack on welfare states, uh, or even on socialism, uh, democratic socialism. I, I think that, in fact, it's possible for democratic socialist states to have human rights. I, I don't agree with uh, democratic socialism, by the way, but um, I enjoy democratic socialism. I live in Germany, um, uh, which has a very, very strong uh, social welfare system but this represents a consensus of the German population. They want to, they don't, they don't complain about pay, paying a lot of taxes. They want to pay more taxes because they want to be a good society. They think that they want to help everyone. And, and I, we, my wife and I, I'll just tell you personally that we, 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 uh, have benefited from this. We have a handicapped child and it's incredible. The benefits that we are entitled to as, as a result. And so <laughs> I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. <clears throat> um, but today I just, um, and I'm very happy to see you and uh, to have this small group to talk to about my book. Uh, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about my perspective on human rights, uh, you know, which comes out of my work. Um, fortunately, I um, uh, have had experience in human rights which preceded my uh, intellectual work, so that I approached the concept of human rights 
based with with some experience behind me rather than the other way around. And I think a lot of people you know, approach human rights uh, from you know, a tech, kind of a textbook point of view, and then this distorts the their their idea of reality. I, I feel my approach is based on a kind of understanding of reality. And this is the first thing I want to talk about. Then I want to talk to a little, little bit about the way that the, the, the international human rights system, and it's not just the UN, it's also regional human rights treaties, have uh, seen a, a kind of proliferation of economic and social rights, um, which are crowding out uh, basic civil and political rights, and, and, and relegating them to a kind of small corner of the human rights, uh, activity. And, uh, um, and, and then the fourth point is it's even worse that we now have a situation where human rights are used as a pretext for violating human rights. <laughs> so that, that, that human rights has, um, become an opponent of human rights or a opponent of natural rights. And maybe that's the clearer way to say this, that, that the concept of human rights uh, today includes natural rights and civil and, and, and economic and social rights, but uh, uh, the, the, the combination of them is working against <clears throat> uh, the enjoyment of, of basic freedoms, of our natural rights. And so, like, I, like Brett said, I've been involved in, in, in human rights and in, in, uh, in a lot of different countries, but mainly my main experience has been uh, as the executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights, which was an organization of uh, composed mainly of dissidents from the the the, the, the Soviet and East European um, human rights community. It was founded in 1982, and I took over the organization in 1993 uh, after the fall of the of the communist countries, of course, and. Um, but still, the organization was made up mainly of people who had been uh, c- confronting the totalitarian state, and 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 they, and uh, and so my perspective on on human rights was very much influenced by them. Um, and uh, uh, but you know, I have a very a, a vivid a, a, um, memory now of of, of an occasion in, in Vienna um, when the European Fundamental Rights Agency. Was being formed, and the, the which the, by the way, the European Fundamental Rights Agency is a complete farce. It's a waste of money, and it doesn't protect any human rights. And uh, and and they they don't even have the the right to set their own agenda. The the Council of Ministers of the EU sets the agenda for a, a human rights monitoring, uh, you know, uh, uh, institution. And, uh, you know, if that were taking place in a country like Moldova, they would scream. But uh, <clears throat> um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off the track here. Um, and so they were, okay, they were forming the, the, the Fundamental Rights Agency, and they invited some NGOs to come and, you know, to talk about what they wanted them to take up. And so I went with some of my colleagues, and we wanted to talk about torture, because there is torture in, in European prisons. There's torture in prisons in a, basically every country in the world, I think. I would be very surprised. Uh, we wanted to talk about freedom of expression, and we wanted to talk about uh, issues like that. But then there was a crowd of people there who wanted to talk about rent control. And they, they had to pushed us aside. And I was thinking, you know, what the hell is going on here? 
you know, uh, what about the priorities? What, what's, what's important here and what isn't important? And I'm not saying that rent control isn't important. But I, but I'm, I'm, I'm question, I question, I question if, 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 if we have to defend the idea that the freedom of torture is more important than rent control. And, and this is the problem for the human rights community today, that there, with the expansive definition of human rights that has been embraced by the international community, uh, there's no basis for making any rational choice between what is and what is not a human right. And you can see this in the development of the international human rights. We have more and more human rights. Uh, second of all, there there's no ability to make priorities. So uh, we are told that uh, all human rights are equal. Um, um, and and therefore, we don't have a, a, a case for for saying that, that the right to be free from torture is more important than the right for rent control. Um, the European Union, uh, in its fundamental rights charter, says that uh, the, 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 which includes 50 provisions, it's one of the biggest human rights charters in the world. And they said, well, we want to have it, we want to have everything there, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and it's, and it's even, they even imply that they could add some rights as it goes. It's, it's a kind of a flexible document. But they, they say that there's a human right to so-called free employment counseling. Um, and I, and I have raised that, that question publicly with the, with the, with the top, with the EU, the, the, the European Union uh, Human Rights Commissioner <laughs> in, in a, in a, in a, in a big meeting of NGOs in Brussels a few years ago and, and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And they, they just got very uptight and, and, and kind of dismissed it and said, well, we, we support all human rights. Like, I don't. You know, and um, and then you know, there was a kind of chill uh, 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 came over the room, and then people thought that I was some sort of kamikaze, which is true. And so, um, but the third problem, you know, as as a human rights defender dealing with the concept of human rights in its in its you know debased form today, is is the legitimation of oppression. That uh, human rights uh, are. You know, our economic and social rights are the, are the rights that dictators love. And, uh, the bad guys have appropriated the concept of human rights. And so when you, you know, Brett and I have been watching these universal periodic reviews in, in, uh, which is a kind of a test of, of states. This is kind of an exam. How they have, uh, you know, fulfilled their human rights obligations. Even North Korea is bragging about their human rights. They, they, they say, "Well, we have free healthcare and uh, education and, and this and that." And people say, "Yes, that's right." And so, you know, I think thirty or forty countries commented after at the at the Universal Periodic Review of, of North Korea that yes, they congratulated them on their fulfillment of uh, economic and social rights. And so the, 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 the impression that you get from this is, well, it's kind of a mixed picture. Yeah, they, they do have some problems with, you know, like gulag camps and, you know, burning political prisoners alive. But, and there's this but, they have, they, look, look at their social system, you know, and, 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 and so, you know, they're coming along. This is what they would say. And 
and this is serious. This is this is a this is a kind of a, a, a serious flaw in the system today, which is 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 creating moral equivalency and 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 a, a degradation of the idea of human rights. Um, I worked in human rights uh, in the Helsinki Federation with Yuri Orlov for many years. I, I, he's still alive, and he was one of the one of the founders of the of the Moscow Helsinki Group, a physicist. And one of the things that he told me that that I'll always remember, and he said that human rights are not about what, they're about how. Human rights are not about our social goals; they're about how we achieve them. And uh, unfortunately, uh, human rights has today associated with social justice, social goals, um, it, it with politics. And this is contrary to the way the, uh, the, 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 the Soviet dissidents and other, other, other uh, uh, human rights activists in the, in the, during the period of communism approached human rights. And there's a section in the book in which I I discuss the human rights concept of these social of these 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 dissidents. And in there are several things that, that appear very prominently when you when you look at this. And in fact the literature on this is is missing uh, because there's there's lots of histories. There are a number of good histories of the dissident movement, but what did they really think about human rights? How did they see human rights? And they didn't articulate very clearly a vision of human rights. But one of the prominent aspects, what, what they did do is they said, this is not politics. And they weren't interested in having the in political activists in their groups. And they didn't want to be seen as a, as a, as a, as a Helsinki group, uh, saw itself as assisting the Soviet government to fulfill its human rights obligations. And I think this is a very healthy way for human rights groups to approach their relationship with their governments from a nonpartisan point of view, from an independent point of view, and um, as and, and to to assist the government to provide objective information, because a government isn't very good at monitoring itself. Uh, they will they will, uh, independent civil society is absolutely essential to human rights uh, activism. And this is another point about the dissident movements is that they had a very scientific approach to human rights. They were looking for facts. And they, the reason is where they, this came from, most of them were like intellectuals and scientists, natural scientists like Orlov, who's a physicist, but Ludmila Alexieva also is a historian. She's trained to understand facts. Unfortunately, um, uh, Facts are in in bad repute today. Nobody believes in facts anymore. Uh, you know, with this kind of postmodern approach to truth, everything believes in facts anymore. Uh, you know, with this kind of postmodern approach to truth, everything depends on where you're coming from, and there's no real truth, and we're just you know lost in a kind of mush that where we we we're you know based on our own interests. <clears throat> um. 
You know, I talk in this book uh, about the problem that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights included economic and social rights, and and uh, um, and this is seen as a a kind of compromise, a political compromise. This is true. Uh, and the, the 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 document was used to solve a political problem, the problem of integrating the, the 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 totalitarian states within the UN system, a moral integration of totalitarianism into the UN system. So to call economic and social rights human rights was a way of uh, well, it was appeasement, but it served this geopolitical purpose of of integration and solidarity. They didn't want them outside. And from maybe from a political point of view, there's some, you know, um, virtue in this. But it's kind of sacrificing the idea of human rights on the altar of global politics. And, and it's, and, 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 uh, I, I, you know, when you look really into the history of this, uh, document, you, you see this, this geopolitical aspect, but you also see, also see the influence of the progressive political parties. Uh, which were ascendant uh, at the end of World War II. And assumptions that, you know, the role of the state was to solve problems uh, and that freedom is only possible when the state does that. So freedom is conditioned on welfare. And so this is a, this is a kind of gradual understanding that built up and really the the main engine of this was the Roosevelt administration, and even though the United States doesn't have a, re- a reputation of, of, of supporting economic and social rights, really the, the, the United States has been responsible largely for uh, their, their presence in the international system. And I, I talk about this in, my, in a chapter about the history of natural rights in America. And, uh, and I say that... Um, even though our country, and I'm a very patriotic American, by the way, I have a European passport, but I, and I live in Europe, but I, you know, maybe, maybe that's why I'm so patriotic, because I see it from afar, and to, to me, America is still a, a beautiful idea. <clears throat> but, uh, natural rights was the, were the foundation of our country. This is, this is what uh, gave the, the, the colonists their idea, their courage, their moral courage, uh, to go out so far on a limb and to risk everything. For freedom, and uh, gradually, this commitment to natural rights, you know, decayed in, our, in, in, in the nineteenth century. People had freedom, and they didn't uh, worry too much about it, the idea of freedom. So, when you have it, you don't love it so much as when you don't have it. Which is something that Plato said, by the way, and. Um, uh, the only. American administration to promote the the notion of natural rights in the international system has been the Reagan administration, and uh, and I, I consider this an extremely healthy thing to to bring this debate about natural rights into international politics. But you don't find it today. <clears throat> um. Another big, uh, another big uh, kind of uh, threshold event in in the development of international human rights was the the 1993 World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna, which I attended parts of. 
And, and there we have this notion, you know, this is where <clears throat> uh, the, the progressives uh, who were, you know, extremely excited at that point um, pushed the notion of economic and social rights uh, very hard because the these rights were no longer associated with totalitarianism. And so, you know, paradoxically, the death of communism resulted in the in a great rebirth of socialistic ideas coming into human rights, and um, <clears throat> the 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 meeting resulted in emphasizing a principle which had been around uh, since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights: the idea of the indivisibility of human rights. Uh, and this, this is really a front for pushing economic and social rights. Uh, but it's, it's sort of, in it, and it's an idea that, by the way, makes absolutely no sense. And, uh, legal scholars say, you know, like James Nichol, uh, who have really said, well, are they, are these rights indivisible? No. They're not. Uh, some are. Some, some, some go together, but some don't have any relationship to each other. And, and, uh, but this, this was saying, what this, what this really says, and I'll, I'll read what I wrote here in my notes. It's a false doctrine that holds that basic freedoms cannot be achieved without economic and social rights. It is a tool to promote the equality of rights. It is a key element of the current human rights dogma. Uh, uh, and no one seems to care that it makes no sense at all. Look at China. China has improved its... Uh, Standard of living. Have, have their, have their freedoms improved? The opposite. Freedoms are going down in China. <clears throat> and another thing is that the, when they, at the Vienna meeting, <laughs> this is kind of interesting that this is where the office, this is where the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights was established. And of course, uh, the guy that, that, that was in charge of figuring out how it worked became the High Commissioner. <laughs> and, um, and um, if you look at the job description of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, well, it's not so much about protecting human rights. It's about upholding the doctrine of indivisibility. And so when you listen to the, the High Commissioner today, especially the previous one, Navi Pillay, all she does is thump on indivisibility and dump on uh, 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 countries which she thinks weren't promoting economic and social rights. Extremely political speeches made by the High Commissioner for Human Rights rights, and, and talking about things like, our goal is substantive equality of people. I mean, this is uh, what the Soviets said, purely. Substantive equality. Okay, now I can understand equality of opportunity as a, as a human rights uh, objective, but substantive equality, this means ensuring that everybody has no more than anybody else. And uh, in its in its in this is you know a, 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 tr a tremendous threat to human rights. But what we have now today in the international we have the proliferation of of human rights law. Uh, we have uh, more and more economic and social rights provisions being inserted into treaties, and we have new uh, collective rights treaties. Uh, in the in the pipeline, uh, there's a, a treaty on the on the rights of the elderly that has uh, 
very likely to be um, come, in, come into force. Uh, and if you look at uh, what, uh, well, how did this happen? Okay, some some countries, some Latin American countries have been promoting this for some time. But it's become, it's been powered by lobbies of different kinds, lobbies who want the, who, who provide care for the elderly. And they want very rigorous standards inserted into this treaty, which will make the kind of services that they provide legally binding. So it's a, this is functioning basically as a regulation. If you look at, if, if you look at the, <clears throat> you know, the, the, uh, theory concerning, you know, regulation, you find it acted out in, with regard to UN human rights treaties. So it's lobbyists, it's lawyers, um, Lawyers love treaties, they love rules, they love courts, they love uh, everything where they have job opportunities. And uh, the ABA has been a, a major promoter of, 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 of this treaty and, and other treaties, I believe. And uh, uh, even though in the, in the 50s, the ABA was a, was, a, was a tremendous critic of international law and of the UN, and especially with regard to <laughs> the human rights. And you know that they said, well, Frank Holman, who was the president of the ABA, was saying, this, this is going to have, this is going to promote communism, you know. <clears throat> but uh, this is a different story today. And the other people who are pushing for the treaty are the UN officials. So you have the, you know, and I, I think this is something fundamentally wrong. They should be neutral on a question like that. This is a matter for states. But UN officials are in there pressuring for the promulgation of this treaty. Why? Well, it gives them another treaty to oversee. It, it, it expands their bureaucracy. It expands their, 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 their money and their, their power. And, uh, they, and, the, and the UN officials are saying that, you know, there's a tremendous gap in the legislation. And, and it's our moral obligation to, to close that gap. And, um, um, and I just, just one more thing about this that, that I uncovered and which I, I put in my book, a, a, an, inter, an internal confidential, not so confidential, but a confidential document from the European Union officials about, <clears throat> about uh, the new treaty. And um, it said, we don't like the treaty. We think it's uh, duplicative. It's not necessary. These rights are covered in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. But we don't, we can't stop it. For, we don't think we can be able, we can stand up to this because the, the lobby is too strong. And, and, and really what this is, is kind of sad because they, they don't have the ideas to stand up to it. They don't, they, they can't defend opposition to this treaty. And, there, you know, any such treaty, economic and social rights treaty, you know, if you oppose it, say, well, you don't care. You don't care about the elderly. You don't care about these things, you know. And uh, believe me, I've been told that a, a few times. <clears throat> and I think I've probably been talking quite a while, but let me just um, finish by talking about how <clears throat> human rights violate natural rights. And, um, and, and the, the, real, the real thing here is that at this Vienna meeting, which I mentioned, um, uh, suddenly tolerance and... Uh, Combating xenophobia 
uh, and things like that became human rights concerns. Um, there's no question that intolerance is a factor in, 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 in human rights violations, but we're talking now about civil society. So human rights is about preventing states from in, in, impinging on our freedoms. But this is, this is the, the, when we talk about something like tolerance or in, intolerance and xenophobia, these are problems of people. These are problems of civilians. So that the human rights community is now starting to come down on, on civil society. The human rights community is part of civil society and is using the human rights machinery to uh, oppose viewpoints that they don't like and call them human rights violations. And, um, and this is why you have the, the hate speech issue today. Uh, uh, the international legislation is very faulty with regard to hate speech because uh, despite the efforts of uh, most liberal democracies, the, the, the uh, communist countries and uh, authoritarian countries were successful in, in inserting into Article 20 of the ICCPR that uh, something that is essentially a hate speech legislation, something like incitement to hatred. What is incitement to hatred? It's a very vague term uh, which can be used by anybody that wants to, that doesn't like what you're saying. You can say, well, that's incitement to hatred, incitement to discrimination, and other treaties, can, you know, like the, the Treaty on Racism, you know, incitement to, to discrimination or incitement to racism. So you could you could say, I'm doing that right now. I, what I'm saying right now, I could go to jail for uh, in a European country. They all they all have hate speech laws. <laughs> so I'll say it here, but I won't say it when I go home. But <clears throat> um, and another thing, uh, the. They talked about at the, at the Vienna meeting was um, non-state actors as violating human rights. So this this became a kind of accepted falsehood that non-state actors are can be guilty of violating human rights. And this is where you have this treaty now. It's another treaty that's in the pipeline against business corporations, a, a treaty to regulate international business corporations. Well, I don't think business corporations violate human rights. They may break laws. And then they should be prosecuted for breaking laws. But this is not the same as violating human rights. And, uh, but, uh, and this will pass. This, this treaty, this treaty has, has got a lot of, a lot of legs to it. And, and it's even opposed by, by the person that, 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 uh, started the whole business in human rights, uh, campaign. And I'll just, uh, end by saying that, um, I'm, I'm worried, uh, very worried about the idea of human rights because I don't think in its currently sort of gutted form that it is a very strong moral idea that can help us stand up to the, the factors in, in the world today which are threatening human rights. Uh, it's not a, not a coincidence that since uh, the, the, the idea of human rights became so expansive, the actual enjoyment of human rights has declined.
since the mid-90s. And we see today uh, movements, political movements, essentially fascistic movements and nationalistic movements in the form of Islamist politics, uh, in the form of the Chinese approach to human rights, and in the form of the Russian um, version of human rights, which aims at protecting spiritual security and, and censoring anything that would disturb uh, adherence to the Russian Orthodox Church. And all of these things, in a creepy way, resemble what's going on in international human rights. And so there's a kind of convergence going on, and that's why I named this final chapter in the book as a convergence against liberty. And um, I'm going to stop there, and uh, um, we would be glad to try to answer any of your questions. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Rhodes. And I... I read an article not too long ago in the New Republic. It was called uh, Dictators Love Development Statistics. And the reason why they love development statistics is because they can always point to something where they're succeeding. You know, if you burrow down far enough and if you uh, manipulate the numbers far enough, you can always pro uh, point to progress in one way or another. And it serves to distract uh, critics or criticism of their practices or of their policies away from what they're doing to their populations in terms of, of other areas, because they can say, well, yeah, maybe, but look over here. And I think what we're seeing on human rights is, is very representative of that. And I was um, curious if you could um, uh, maybe provide a few examples of how human rights groups themselves have become captured by this. And I'm reminded uh, of a debate I had in, in a different context, uh, the International Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN. And in there, we were doing a privatization of ICANN uh, to get government uh, you know, to end the U.S. contractual relationship with it. But in so doing, the civil society groups wanted to make sure there were human rights protections inside of ICANN. And, uh, and this was a big debate because it was a corporation, and corporations aren't the same, don't have the same responsibilities as states do in terms of human rights. Um, but in, in a lot, large part of the debate was about, well, what could ICANN really do within its mandate to affect human rights? And my uh, suggestion was, let's focus on what ICANN actually does in terms of content, freedom of expression, that sort of thing. And the human rights groups recoiled in horror uh, from this because you can't break apart human rights. So just as much as ICANN has maybe some potential impact in terms of freedom of expression, it must also, by definition, have just as much role in the right to food or the right to uh, rent control or whatever it is that comes up. And I, you know, when you raise the very reasonable point that ICANN has nothing to do with provision of food or ICANN has nothing to do with rent, no, 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 no. They're indivisible. They're interrelated, they're in, uh, interdependent, and you, they're all equal. You can't uh, treat them separately one from the other. And this, to me, seems to have become embedded in the psyche and in the philosophy of everybody from Amnesty International to Human Rights Campaign to others. And I think it is detrimental because not every human right is the same. 
not every human rights situation requires every human rights situation to be dealt with equivalently and, and across the board. And I think it, it serves as um, a, it undermines our effort to actually truly address awful human rights situations around the world. And I wonder if you could talk about how human rights groups arrived at this point and maybe um, uh, what could be done about it to actually get them back onto the track that we think they should be on. And then I'll open it up to all questions from the audience. Thank you. Well, it's, it's complicated. Um, uh, the one, one factor is that, okay, how did we get here? <laughs> and, and, and one of the reasons, you know, I, I, I don't blame human rights groups. Um, and I, I think we have to be careful about dumping on human rights groups. Uh, you, you, I, I, you know, Amnesty International has a, has a reputation of being a leftist human rights group. But if you look at the reports they actually write, they don't write very many reports about economic and social rights at all. It's mainly sort of a platform for political rhetoric by their leaders. But when they get down to, when you look at their actual work, they find they, they can't really get their teeth into economic and social rights, and they produce a lot of very good reports about torture, freedom of expression, freedom of association, these basic things. And, 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 uh, um, and when I want to know a fact about one of these questions, I always pull up the amnesty report. The, the, the documentation is so precise, and, and they're so careful that uh, you, you can rely on them saying these things. But the fact is that Amnesty has changed its mandate, and, and uh, there, there was a tremendous fight inside the organization, a fight that lasted for 15 years or something like that about this. And the old, the old, the old crowd were, you know, wanted to stick with the, their original mandate, and then they had the, a lot of leftists coming into the organization that wanted to change it. And... Uh, after the fall of the uh, communist countries, the, all the peace uh, pro proponents, the, all these, the, the members of all these peace groups um, in Europe, maybe in America too, they didn't have a, anything to do anymore. And uh, they, they joined human rights groups and they called what they were doing human rights. And so this is another factor, this is sort of a demographic factor that um, uh, human rights became a, a kind of platform for a very diverse group of, of activists along with the expanded uh, uh, ex you know, definition of human rights. And these things kind of went together. Uh, the human rights groups had a very big impact on the Vienna meeting. And uh, uh, the, the preparation for this meeting involved hundreds of NGOs from different regions that came and pressured the delegates to do things. And uh, unfortunately, our government did almost nothing at that time. They, they, they made no proposals and they did nothing to, to stop this butchering of the idea of human rights. Um, I think today, you know, that you're, you know, Brett is right that, you know, that the, the you know, this interconnectedness, this is... Uh, a kind of shows you that human rights are not something that's liberating people today. Human rights is something that's hemming people in. You know, you can't do anything without violating a human right. And so, um, as, as they're defined, and, <clears throat> and um, human rights is, is uh, very often associated, and rightly, with global governance campaigns. And, <clears throat> and of course, this is turning off 
a lot of people. And, and unfortunately, and I think it's especially unfortunate that it's turning off a lot of conservatives, that human rights has become so ideological that a lot of conservatives have just given up on human rights. And one of the things I hope to do with my book is to, is to interest uh, conservatives in human rights again and, and, and to get and, and, and to inspire a, the development of, of a human rights uh, approach which is consistent with l- classical liberalism and, and to give it more force. Anybody in the audience who would like to ask a question? General? Please identify yourself and sure. uh, ask a question, please. Uh, Chris Unger. I'm a private practicing physician here in the Washington area. I also am a GW faculty member. Um, I would like to ask both of you whether you have seen the uh, horrible carnage that was reported in previous years in the Middle East. I'm speaking specifically about beheadings. Is the incidence of that going down in the past year? Thank you. I don't know. I I don't keep statistics on beheadings myself. I haven't heard about too many recently, but... um, I'm not the right person to answer that question, I think. Um, I could maybe try to help you find somebody like that, but uh, if you want to see me afterwards. But I I think that maybe online you can look it up. I'm Deborah Weiss from Center for Security Policy. Uh, Given the fact that the UN Declaration of Human Rights has those clauses in it that you referenced, which are basically uh, advocating for social uh, economic rights and also the clauses on, on the hate speech how, do you think it's time for us to re- to rewrite that like how how would we overcome that i have heard other places criticize america because we don't have enough human rights because we believe in freedom from government and a lot of those clauses as you uh, pointed out are mandates to have more government You know, it's just a, this is a very fundamental problem because the fu- the foundation of our human rights system is is faulty, and and when you criticize it, it's a kind of heresy. It's like criticizing the Ten Commandments, and uh, and I don't have any doubt myself that the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has been an inspiration for for many people, and and it's been a threat. To, to dictators around the world. And I have friends in Uzbekistan who got in jail because they found copies of this in, the, in their possession. <clears throat> but at the same time, it's not a law. It's a set of principles. And so there's flexibility in the way it can be interpreted. And, uh, and you know, it's possible to simply ignore uh, economic and social rights, not not promote them, criticize them, and focus on freedom. Focus on on protecting basic freedoms, and 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 to call out the exploitation uh, and the you know the 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 uh, betrayal of human rights when it happens. And I think that's that's the that's probably the best way to approach this. When you when we 
you know, there's a fundamental principle of the rule of law. You don't cherry-pick laws. And that, that's the problem with our international human rights system of, of laws is that, is that so many of them are, are make no sense. And it's, this is a dilemma for law-abiding people and, and for people who promote the rule of law. Um, and I'm, not, I'm really not sure how to get around this, but, <clears throat> you know, I think that the problem is going to solve itself in a, in a few decades because the international human rights system is becoming more and more thin and weak and non-compliance with human rights is on the rise. Even European countries aren't complying with the European Convention on Human Rights, with rulings of the European Court. Uh, and if you look at the statistics on this, you know, even you know the most democratic. I'm not talking about Romania or or, some, or, or Georgia or a country like that. They they never comply with the European Convention or Russia. But even the, you know Western European democracies uh, aren't complying with these rulings and. And gradually, we're going to have to find a way to protect uh, natural rights outside of this system. Uh, Adam Brickley, I work here at Heritage. I was wondering if you'd comment on uh, something I've been seeing more, at least in the debate here in the U.S., and I'm assuming in other Western countries in the last couple of years when human rights comes up. Uh, which is not just the expansion of the idea of human rights, but the idea that if certain people broach the idea of human rights uh, that are from a privileged class or because they're Westerners, that they have uh, – that even broaching the subject is somehow uh, a theft of another person's culture or an act of colonization and oppression, and that therefore they have a moral responsibility not just to accept the expanded definition, but to shut up so that that so that, that even broaching it is an act of oppression and whether that view is becoming more prominent and whether it's causing problems. Well, I think it is becoming more prominent. And, and, and this is part of the dynamic of new human rights. Uh, and when you follow the, you know, the statements and the publications of the, of the advocates of the various new human rights, it's extremely cynical, first of all. You find that they, they, per, they fully accept the idea that human rights is a kind of way of politics. Human rights is nothing but politics, what they say. They, they, it's so it's a little bit like uh, um, people who say that constitutional rights are nothing but politics, that they're there to protect certain classes of people. And that, you know, that the, 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 the necessity in America is to sort of overcome Constitution, constitutional rights in order to have progress. Well, it's the same thing going on there. And they, and they, and, 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 and they very often say that, well, civil and political rights, those are your rights. I want my own rights. As if, 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 as if they don't enjoy civil and political rights. So civil and political rights are considered sort of the rights of the old white males and so on. And I mean, uh, this is just a disaster. And, uh, and, and it shows you how, how, how uh, derisory our understanding of human rights has, has become. I hope I answered your question. I made a statement, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll ask one final um, uh, question, and that is uh, we're increasingly seeing efforts to try and um, – you mentioned this at the very end – um, uh, identify specific groups, individuals as having separate rights agendas. Um, 
whether that be uh, children's rights or women's rights or uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, all these different types of uh, sort of group rights. And the idea behind them is that uh, human rights are insufficient to cover these individual groups. And how would you address those types of complaints and concerns by those groups to say that we're not um, uh, covered or sufficiently covered or addressed uh, in terms of our rights under the, the broader umbrella of human rights? I think that's a good, really good question. And and the way that, when you know, I go back to my own practice in human rights that uh, in the Helsinki Federation, we uh, organized the first uh, really major uh, project on women's rights in the region. And um, I, don't, I don't think anybody involved thought that uh, there was any difference, difference between women's rights and human rights. Women just needed um, help to ensure that their human rights were respected. And, and I think this is the answer that there, you know, there are vulnerable groups in society who suffer human rights violations, and we have to focus on their group, on, on them as individuals to ensure that authorities respect their human rights and, and to ensure that discrimination doesn't play a role in the, in the equal treatment before the law. And uh, all of their rights uh, should be protected by the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the interpretation of that, that covenant, you have to look very closely on that to make sure that they're doing their job, and generally they do, and generally do, do a good job, by the way. I think it's the bright part in the whole UN system. But, um, but I think that, that uh, uh, you know, focusing on this fundamental treaty and, and bringing those concerns into that treaty body and in, into, the, into, the, into promoting compliance with that treaty is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, still one final question. I'm still doubting. <laughs> um, I actually attended a panel somewhere else and went to great pains to get there on free speech, because that's something that I'm very focused on, and was completely shocked that the entire panel consisted of basically them trying to shut Trump up. It was a Trump bashing festival, and they were, in my opinion, incorrectly saying that he was threatening free speech, because according to them, he kept saying the media is the enemy, which is not what he said. He said the fake news media is the enemy. And... um I'm just wondering, I I haven't been able to figure out how across this country, and according to what you're saying, across many countries, the inverse of the word is really being used. So, um, you know, free speech is, hey, I mean, I was interested in networking. I wouldn't want to work for any of those places now because the free speech advocates are advocating for censorship. And it seems to be happening on a lot of different topics and if it's happening all over, like uh, what what is the source of it? Uh, do you think that it might be partly a gradual dissociation from our Judeo-Christian values, which advocate for individual responsibility? Yeah, I don't know about what the last part you said. That's that that's that's a little bit heavy for me, um, but. Um, 
But I think, like I said, I think this this uh, this all started first of all with the with this uh, political failure in the in the in the in the drafting of the article of the of the covenant, and a lot of the countries that that opposed um, putting this vague hate speech language into international law at that time now promote it. Uh, you're right, you know, and, and, and this is terrifying. The human rights community is is from is is campaigning for restrictions on free speech, and uh, you know, cops and robbers are a bad are a tough combination to 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 protect yourself from. And um, uh, and this uh, has broader uh, cultural. Uh, and political implications, and uh, and it, and it, to me, it represents a, a kind of increasing kind of conformism in society, political correctness, and uh, uh, and fear of kind of standing out, and and people that, that pe- people need to be have courage to stand out, and and. Uh, and all 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 good ideas were at one point um, odd ideas, and uh, I, I don't know really what I can say to your your point beyond the fact that um, we have to have in this in this society a kind of counter revolution in human rights where uh, uh, where we object to to that interpretation of human rights and and show what's wrong with it in a very civil way. Not in a way that disrespects our fellow citizens for their, for what we disagree with, but in, a, in an appeal to rationality, which is difficult because the rationality is um, considered something old-fashioned. But human rights, uh, in, 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 in my study of human rights and of natural rights, and of you know the basis, the, the fundamental, the fundamental building blocks of human rights ca- came to us from from John Locke and also from Immanuel Kant. Who said that you know human rights you know depends on rationality, and in order to protect rationality, we have to use rationality. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Rosen, for coming here and talking about your book today. There are some copies available in the lobby if you'd like to purchase one. I think it's a very, uh, very timely topic today when we're uh, constantly. Uh, facing challenges to some basic fundamental rights from people who uh, don't want to be offended or don't want to be uh, confronted with ideas that they disagree with. And I think we need to be having that conversation and that uh, back and forth more than ever today. Thank you very much.